Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, your daily need to know in the worlds of news and politics. I'm Andrew Harrison. 75 years ago, on the 5th of July 1948, Labour Health Minister Anurin Bevin launched the new National Health Service. His great and novel undertaking has expanded into a vast system with a budget of almost £200 billion, a workforce of £1.4 million, and a unique place in our national identity. A recent Health Foundation Ipsos poll found that 54% of people said the NHS is what makes them most proud to be British. Yet the NHS has always seemed to be in crisis in one form or another, and the latest one is possibly the most serious and even existential. The NHS has made it to 75, but will it make it to 80? And if so, in what shape? Uh, almost since we started the bunker, we've been lucky enough to get the expert knowledge of Roy Lilly, independent health policy analyst, writer, broadcaster, commentator, and friend of the pod. And we are delighted to have him for the very first time in the actual bunker physically right now. Hello, Roy. Well, hello, Andrew. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely to be in the studio. I had no idea the studio was so big with a grand piano in the corner and a cocktail cabinet. <laughs> they, they can see it on video, Roy. They know oh, it's basically sorry. a shoebox. So you can't create that image. It's a very, very highly produced uh, podcast. So thank you for having me. I'd say that's, that's, that's very flattering. So let's, let's talk about the NHS and its 75th anniversary. You would expect the celebratory mood that we've managed to have a free appointment service NHS for 75 years. And you were just talking before we uh, before we began recording. For the 50th birthday, you actually played with your band at a celebration. And yet the mood is almost funereal now. What state is the NHS in as it turns 75? OK, well, let's do the easy question first. What mood is it in? Well, look, I mean, it's knackered, isn't it? That's the only way to describe it. I mean, collectively, it is knackered. I think the move is, is irritation with politicians. I think, you know, the strikes aren't helping. And I, and, I, and we're recording this uh, on the Monday after mm. Amanda Pritchard, the chief executive of the NHS, was on the Coonsberg programme on Sunday. And some listeners may have seen that and how she had to sort of carefully diplomatically pick her way around what are the problems of the NHS. And most of them are problems that have been caused by very poor political decisions. They want to be left alone to get on with the job. And, and that's the overriding impression that I get. I mean, if I said to you the NHS is looking after more people now than it's ever done at any time in its history, set that against seven and a half million people waiting on the waiting list, I'm critical at the NHS very often, but I think, you know, in fairness, it was worth pointing out that, you know, things like the 18-month waiting list is almost down to nothing. The two-year waiting list, that that's being attacked as well. So I think my point is, if we leave the NHS alone to get on with the job, it will roll up its sleeves and it will de be delivering. It will deliver. But of course, at the moment now, of course, we've got another week of junior doctor strikes coming yeah. up. What refrain we keep hearing at the moment is, is that bluntly the NHS is is dying before our eyes, that it's, mm. it's, it's withering. Do you do you think that holds water? No, I don't. I think it's alive and well, and it can't be looking after more people than it's ever looked after yeah. in its history if it was dying. I think it can recover if it's given the time and the space to get on and recover. Mm. Um, more cynically, it's, you know, a lot of people would uh, describe or think that it's being deliberately starved of money and political commitment so that hiving off services to private providers becomes the only option. Mm. Uh, yeah, a lot of people say that. If you look at the history of that, of course, I mean, Virgin came in, didn't they? Yeah. Um, where are they now? They've gone. They've given up all their contracts and they've, they've pretty much run away. If you look at what happened at Hingenbrook Hospital, for example, when Circle were given a whole hospital to run, 
What did they do? They ran it for three years and then they paid the NHS £5 million in, in contract penalties to get out and stop doing it. You know, I have no argument with the private sector. And if they can deliver something reliable and safe and, and well, why not? Absolutely. I'm agnostic about that. But if you look at most of the big experiments that there have been in getting private companies in to do the job of the NHS, they've all failed. And the reason for that is there's just not enough money in the system. Private companies have to make a profit. Mm. They at least have to wash their hands on their balance sheets. You know, most of them have got shareholders as well to think about. So there isn't the money in the system. Right. And yet what we hear a lot about now is that uh, what are the kind of the ideas behind the Brexit impulse was that we would turn more towards an orientation to the United States and that American healthcare companies, which are larger, uh, in some respects better resourced, but also much more ruthless, will be likely to come in and start cherry picking the valuable parts of the NHS. Yeah, I mean, I keep an eye on healthcare systems around the world. Most American healthcare systems now are struggling. If you look at United Health and uh, Kaiser Permanente, all of the big ones are struggling. Would they come here? Well, uh, Centene did come here, have come here, and they have taken over and they are running quite a number of our GP practices. Well, GP practices, of course, are have always been private. We forget that. We think going to see the GP, we're going to see somebody in the NHS. They're not really. They're contractors to the NHS. And so... Uh, Centene, I've been to see them. I've seen what they're doing. They've invested in a, a lot of money in what we might call back office and middle office stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that, that does make a saving. And they've invested in IT and digital services. Are they making any money? No. And how long they're going to be here for? I don't know. Okay. Let's just step back a little bit and do a bit more of a historical perspective. You know, from your knowledge of the service, Roy, what have been what have been the high points of it in these past 75 years? Oh, well, there are so many. Uh, I mean, I, of course, when the NHS was born, it lifted off the shoulders of working people, the worry, the anxiety of accident, illness, disease, mm. giving birth, all of that. Some of my earliest memories with the family are uh, conversations around the fact they could go to the doctor and all that, but I just... I must just briefly tell you, I was, as a little boy, I was quite ill at one stage and I'd been ill for several days and my mum didn't know what to do, my gran didn't know what to do and the lady down the road didn't know what to do and my dad uh, at 10 o'clock at night said, well, let's find out if the NHS is really free. Right. And he wrapped me in a blanket and took me around to where the doctor lived and knocked on his door at 10 o'clock at night. And the doctor said, it was in his uh, uh, dressing gown, apparently, and uh, he said, come in, he examined me, he said, this little boy's very ill, he's got to go to hospital. And he drove us in his car to hospital. And that's the first time my dad had ever been in a car. And, and, and he saved my life. The NHS is definitely part built of millions of little stories yes. like this, isn't it? And we, if we look at the successes, the huge successes that the NHS has had, uh, you can go on the uh, uh, on the NHS website and look look for a timeline of yeah. what the NHS has uh, has done and achieved. If we go further down the timeline, it's interesting. It wasn't until 1957 that we had the whooping cough immunisation program, and in 1973. By those 20 years, just under 20 years later, the number of cases of whooping cough fell to nearly zero due to the immunisation programme. We forget that. 
Um, there are lots of others. I mean, 1962, the first hip replacement was carried out by John Charnley. And uh, earlier, the, uh, the first kidney transplant took place in the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary involving identical twins because that was right. the way that they could get, they understood the immunology enough to know that they, they would get a good match. So it's full of, uh, of history. I mean, since then, there have been notable firsts. And um, we had the first cochlear ear um, implant for, to help people with hearing uh, disabilities. Very interesting. That wasn't until 2010. Mm. You know, some of these are really quite recent. And the, I was going to say this deserves a round of applause. The first double hand transplant was formed, <laughs> was performed at Leeds uh, Teaching Hospital. Big hand for Leeds Teaching Hospital. So when you go back, it's really interesting to go back and look over the history of the NHS. It's had huge clinical successes. I can't say the same, I'm afraid, for the way it's been managed and messed about by the politicians, but uh, it certainly has a, a, a history ready to be proud of. One of the kind of facts that a lot of us will know is that Bevan essentially got over doctors' objections to the NHS by the quote was stuffing their mouths with gold. Yes, basically in. paying yeah. them. Yeah, give it, give in. Well, yeah. look, I mean, if we look at the history very quickly, the the NHS came from the beverage report. Churchill at the time uh, didn't want anything to do with it, and then of course he lost the election, and then the Labour Party came in, and the bones of the NHS were uh, well. First of all, I think the NHS, the spirit of the NHS, came from a book called The Citadel, which is worth uh, worth a read talking about uh, primary care in the Welsh mining towns. And the end point was, was clearly identified, a national scheme, but the, the road to doing it wasn't. And it took Bevan to say, I'm just going to nationalise the existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what he did. That, of course, inspired a huge resistance from the BMA that came to be known as the British Machiavellian Army at the time. <laughs> uh, they uh, they did a, the the 1940 equivalent of crowdfunding, and they got they had a million pounds. They collected a million pounds from the medical profession to for legal fees and everything else to try and stop this happening. They fought it mm. tooth and nail. They said they thought that clinicians would be come little more than common servants. The upshot of it was it got nearer and nearer to the the, uh, deadline. Uh, And I think Bevan really was in a point where either the whole thing was going to go down the tubes or they were going to have to compromise. And so they compromised in two ways. Firstly, they allowed hospital consultants to continue on with their private practice. Mm -hmm. And of course, the big thing is GPs. GPs were allowed to carry on uh, with their businesses because they were small businesses. Many of them were working out of their homes um, and many of them had nurses for wives and they they worked as a double act. That was what my local GP did. His, His dining room was a waiting room, big mahogany table in the middle of the waiting room. And I was told as a little boy, don't touch the table. <laughs> Don't put your horrible finger marks on this polished table. No one ever did. We always walked in with great sort of reverence like we were going to church. And then, um, so they've got this curious um, self-employed status. And to be honest, I think they're the two compromises that are some of the biggest stumbling blocks that we have today. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you about because, uh, you know, doctors still occupy, GPs occupy a very exalted position, separate, special um, and we do hear continual um, 
sort of a continual drumbeat from commentators of a particular bent that, you know, doctors won't be flexible. They won't, you know, they won't carry out, uh, they won't work on a Saturday morning or in evenings, that the flexibility that's come to every other kind of workplace hasn't really come to that part of the NHS. How much of this is spin? How much of this is a legitimate thing that does need looking at? Yeah, well, it's partly true. I mean, we get uh, 93% of first contacts in the NHS in primary care. That means GPs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we get 93% for 11% of the budget. Right. So it's a very good deal. Uh, and there are a lot of people now who are saying, in my view, quite rightly, we should move the fulcrum point of care more towards primary care so that primary care could do more to keep um, people out of hospital. The way they're remunerated is very difficult. to, uh, And just to explain it briefly, they get a certain number of fees. The more you ask the GPs to do, somebody's got to pay for it. Mm. Um, and that's why they... It looks like um, they are always reluctant to do things and they're all asking for more money. But if you actually look at the the way the funding formula works, it's arcane, really. It's called yeah. the Red Book and it really needs tearing up and starting again. And it's really easy for politicians to kind of issue a glib promise about how you'll be able to get, you know, a drone will bring your uh, prescription immediately yeah. from a GP that you've seen by hologram and all this kind of stuff. Yes. Let's talk about the kind of some of the more immediate problems that it's facing. We mentioned the staffing crisis. There's 112,000 vacancies. It's a bit rich for Rishi Sunak to talk about a long-term plan for staffing when he's on the 13th year of a Conservative government, which is probably not going to last that much longer. Yeah, it's neglect, isn't it? I mean, what if we look back, what's really gone wrong with the NHS? The reason it's in the predicament that it's in now are, are three things. First of all, the world banking crisis in 2009. Following that, George Osborne was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He said the markets will sort this out and he cut back on public expenditure. So we had 10 years of pretty much flatline funding under 2%. Now, the NHS needs about 4% a year in order to keep up with demand and catch up and train and what have you. So we had nearly 10 years where we didn't train enough people, recruit enough doctors, nurses, build enough hospitals, have enough beds, repair enough. I mean, we've got a £10 billion refurbishment bill outstanding now. We're never going to be able to rebuild these hospitals and it's just going to cost too much money. So the damage was done during that period. We went into COVID with four and a half million people on the waiting list and 40,000 nurse vacancies. Along comes COVID, all bets are off. We don't know what happened during COVID. I mean, somehow or other, the NHS heroically muddled through. We've come out the other side of COVID. The chickens are coming home to roost. We haven't got enough people. The vacancies have gone through the roof. After COVID, everybody was exhausted, very foolishly, we didn't have a rest and recuperation recovery program for the staff. I mean, I was talking to a doctor uh, just the, the other day, and he said, the first thing I did when I got onto the wards was deal with somebody with a cardiac arrest, and the person died. He said, by the time I'd finished my shift, I'd done six more, and all six had died. No one working in the NHS had seen death on that kind of industrial scale. And that's what's damaged a lot of people. And so we've, we've handled that really very badly. That's the first thing. And now, of course, we've got the strikes. Mm. And the strikes are doing huge damage. Uh, it's all very well, you know, for the doctors and consultants and whatever to say, oh, well, A&E is going to be safe. We'll cover it and we'll make sure the wards are all right. What we're forgetting is every day of strike action 
is turfing 100,000 people off the waiting list. They get that letter that says, we're really sorry, we've got to cancel your operation because there's a strike. Now, all those people on those lists are there because they have a clinical priority. Mm. So all these clinical priorities are going out the window. And somehow or other, the NHS has got to find not only the resources to look after seven and a half million people who are on the waiting list already, but now close on a million people who've gone back on the list because they've been turfed off. So those are the three things, really, that the NHS is struggling with. And so we come onto the workforce plan. The workforce plan can't solve any of that overnight because you can't ring up Amazon and get a box of nurses delivered by lunchtime. We're bringing people in from overseas. At the moment, 15% of everybody working working in the NHS wasn't born here. And we're bringing people in from countries we should not bring them in from. We bring them in from Nigeria. We bring them in from Nepal. Mm. All countries that are on the World Health Organization red list where we're not supposed to be bringing them in from because they don't have developed healthcare systems. So we're really struggling. And although the workforce plan, I mean, I think the workforce, I don't think it's a workforce plan. I think it's a workforce blueprint. And as a workforce blueprint, I think it's very sensible. It's not overambitious. And it recognises this is long haul. At the end of it, at the end of the 15 years, we're supposed to have 300,000 more people working in the NHS. Well, let me tell you, if a week is a long time in politics, so is 15 years. That's the life of three parliaments. Whether the plan will survive the parliaments, I'm not sure. The next prime minister whomever he or she is, but it's probably going to be Keir Starmer, is going to inherit a nightmare. And Starmer has made fixing the NHS one of his missions. He says he's planning for the biggest workforce expansion in NHS history. Massive new investment. Not yet quite saying how it's going to be paid for. Um, What do you make of the plans such as we know of them from Labour's approach? Well, the noise you can hear is the fox being shot. The Tories have shot Labour Party's fox. I mean, Wes Streeting's been doing the rounds saying he's going to double the number of nurses and double the number of doctors and he's going to pay for it by having uh, all the non-doms taxed properly here. Well, look, I mean, let's face it, non-doms aren't stupid. Uh, If they can see a Labour Party's coming, the non-doms are not going to be here. I don't think Labour has... A, a workforce policy or a workforce plan in so far as the workforce plan that's come out, yeah, what well, came out last week, that, that's the NHS plan. And so it's there, it's oven ready. If there is a change of government, Keir Starmer doesn't have to work out what his workforce plan is. He can say that the NHS has got a workforce plan, it's viable, we will fund it. Uh, Wes Treating has not made many friends in the NHS, I'm mm. afraid it must be said. He, shortly after he was appointed, he launched a big attack on managers saying that they were leeching, their salaries were leeching money away from patient care, which was a really stupid thing to say because, if anything, the NHS is undermanaged. It has fewer managers per head of population than most similar systems in Europe. Uh, then he had a go at the GPs and their their arrangements that they've got that we've been just discussing a moment or two ago. He wants to change all that. And that got the GPs very excited. So, uh, I mean, whether he will actually be appointed, uh, who knows? It will be unusual. I mean, the last person who was a shadow Secretary of State for Health and then became substantive after the election was Andrew Lansley, and he caused a total blooming disaster. You're a big fan, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I would be surprised. Uh, Usually you don't appoint the shadow in government because the shadow has done the 
tour of the NHS making all kinds of rash promises that when you get into government, you can't, you can't deliver. So you usually it's wise to appoint someone else. But yes, I mean, uh, it, it, Starmer is, well, he's going to, he will inherit the legacy of neglect and underfunding. Uh, and that is true. But he will also inherit a, a million and a half people or 1.4 million people who come to work every day with the intention of doing the absolute best they can. And if he can tap into that morale and that enthusiasm, then, well, we'll have to see. Do you think it's fair to say that this Conservative government has been the NHS's worst steward? Yes, I think uh, certainly George Osborne. Uh, I watched George Osborne give evidence at the COVID inquiry where he was quizzed on the impact of austerity. And, uh, I mean, his answers were fatuous, really. He said, oh, it was only because of austerity that when COVID came, there was enough money for us to deal with COVID. Actually, that is not true. We borrowed a shedload of money to get through COVID. But, of course... You know, the, I don't know, I mean, they just let him off very lightly, I think. And Cameron said the same thing. But that was when the real damage was done. Well, you'll be able to go on his podcast soon and tell him why he's wrong, because he's doing a podcast with Ed Balls, telling us how to do economics. Well, listen, I'm I'm here. I'm <laughs> You got my phone number. No, you're fully signed up to our <laughs> podcast, Roy. You're not allowed to go on anybody else. No transfer fee. No transfer fee. <laughs> There's no release clause in your contract, Roy. So just to wrap it up then, I mean, like I said at the, uh, the, at the beginning of the show, you know, the NHS has made it to 75 in some kind of a functional shape. Will it make it to 80? And in what shape? I mean, obviously, there is probably, touch wood, going to be a change of government. Are you personally optimistic about it? Yes, let's assume that the polls are right and let's assume that uh, Starmer gets in with a, you know, probably a slender majority, but a working majority. He's been talking about the NHS uh, doesn't need more money, it needs reorganising or something. That would be a disastrous thing to do. He shouldn't do that. And I'm... And I'm I know that he's got plenty of advisors that have said to him, don't do that. Let, just let the thing, leave it as it is. Give it an assurance of some sort of funding platform and it will deliver. So uh, am I optimistic? Well, look, I, I told you at the beginning of our podcast that I was born before the NHS and I don't want to die after it. So right. I, I'm, I'm remaining optimistic. I know we hear failures all the time. People come forward with harrowing stories of how the NHS has let them down. And what can you say other than, you know, I'm desperately sorry that that's been your experience. But today, as we're sitting here now, over a million people will be looked after by the NHS. No, they won't all have the best five-star experience. And some of them will go home very cross and some of them will have good reason. But for the majority of them, they will have a good experience they will be grateful that the NHS is still there and they will be pleased that they were looked after in the way that they were. Uh, the NHS is not a religion. The NHS is a public service and it belongs to us all. Well, I can say uh, I am a happy customer having had a, a sudden rather serious medical episode about 18 months ago and I couldn't believe how good it was. Yeah. Even the food or everything I've been told by sitcoms was a lie. Yeah. NHS food's amazing. It wins awards. I, I've, I've, before COVID, I was at their catering awards and presented some awards. They absolutely crack it. A lot of them do. And having said that, people now will email me and said, you should see the mess my granny had in her plate last night. But broadly speaking, they do the best they can. <laughs>
Roy Lilly, thanks so much for coming on the on the bunker again and actually coming in for the first time. It's a pleasure. It's been a thrill and great to meet you all. A great team of people working really hard. They all were very friendly and I had a couple of builders when I got here. What's not to like? Absolutely. Well, you know, we, we, we aim to give the best possible service we can. Um, listeners, the bunker hasn't turned 75 just yet, but we did just put out our 1,000th edition and it is all down to generous Patreon backers like you. If you would like to help to keep the bunker free at points of use for all, irrespective of their income, then please consider backing us on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get the podcast early and with no adverts. Plus, you'll get splendid merchandise too. New designs with our swanky new look from Jim are coming soon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how you can support us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. The Bunker was written and presented by group editor Andrew Harrison. The producer was Liam Tate, with assistant production from Adam Wright. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieber. Our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production.